Are you ready for this? I'm ready. <laughs> got your earbuds? Yeah, I got them in, so should be good to go. So I gotta ask you, because the podcast is called Behind the Wheel, are you always behind the wheel? Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. So living in Baltimore, in the inner city, I was present when the Freddie Gray riots occurred. Baltimore was actually the first city in America to come up with a essentially legal way to ban African Americans' property ownership within white residential areas. Nation is a two-sided marketplace where we introduce artisanal and emerging uh, brands, mainly snack brands, to consumers at key moments where they're most engaged. Hi, I'm Derek, and this is Behind the Wheel, a show dedicated to highlighting the accomplishments of ordinary people who are doing extraordinary things within the community. Check us out on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcast. Ooh, let's get started. Good morning and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Wheel. I'm your host, D. Ivan Oxley. We got a special guest today all the way. He is originally from North Carolina, now residing in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Father of three boys, husband, Mr. Travis Withers. Give it up for Travis. Good morning. Good morning. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, man, I, I, I was looking forward to it. You know, I've been following you uh, for some time online, you know, the Daddy Chronicles, you know, and I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. this, this, is, this is possibly, a, not possibly, this is definitely a book here. I don't know what number you're up to now. I've got over a thousand of them that I've done. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting um, use of, of social media. And so for the folks who don't know you, why don't you, you know, tell them a little bit about yourself, how you got started in this world of endurance sports. Okay, so Travis Withers, um, I got started in endurance sports. I finished a really demanding job. Um, I was a assistant brand manager uh, at Procter & Gamble. It's a demanding job, demanding company. Uh, at the end of my run there, you know, I moved to another job. I moved to uh, Omaha, Nebraska from Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm-hmm. I felt really physically and emotionally drained. Um, I was in the worst shape of my life physically. Um, I had been a collegiate wrestler. I wrestled uh, Division One at North Carolina State University uh, at 190 pounds. I had ballooned up to uh, almost 280 pounds. Mm. Um, so I was not... I was, you know, feeling bad physically. You know, I left that job with uh, high blood pressure uh, and borderline diabetic. And I was like, okay, I need to make some changes uh, if I want to see my kids get married. And the first change I needed to make was to get a new job. Uh, Just because working 60 hours a week, you know, I was neglecting my wife. I was neglecting my kids. I wanted to do better and I wanted to be a better father. Uh, so I decided to get into endurance sports, um, and, you know, after my wife made the plunge, uh, she started off, you know, she started off with a 5k, I think 2010, uh, after we had our first child, she did her first 5k, uh, in Cincinnati and, you know, she did it and she succeeded at it. And then she just got the bug. I mean, she did 5k, she did 10k. Did the half marathon, and she did four marathons, and I was like, you know what, I can't, you know. So then we moved to Nebraska. I was like, I got kind of got the bug too, mm-hmm. you know. So I started, uh, you know, doing five Ks and ten Ks and whatnot, 
and and I started to realize I'm a bigger guy. You know, I've always been big. Even when I was in top shape and I was wrestling, I was wrestling at 190 pounds and had 8% body fat. So I've always had a big frame. And so I realized that... Come again? How tall are you? I'm I'm 5'10". So I've always been kind of built like a tank. Um, And so, you know, uh, just kind of squat, solid uh, build. And so running and running constantly was getting, was starting to affect my joints. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was starting to like affect my knees and my ankles. I was like, man, I'm, I'm wearing down. And so I started to look at triathlon. The problem was I couldn't swim. <laughs> so I was, I was 35 years old and I could swim 12 yards. And so, you know, this was 20, by this time it was 2013, I believe. And I was like, you know what? I decided I was going to make a go to swim. And I said it on the calendar. I remember the triathlon. Uh, you know, it was just it was a small local triathlon. It had a, a, a 400-yard open water swim across a shallow lake. Lake was so shallow, you could stand up in it for most of the swim. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I, took some, I signed up for lesson at the Y in April. I knew the triathlon was in June. I was like, okay, we're going to get this done. And, you know, I started off just just swimming the length of the pool. Then, you know, I, I my lessons just built up. I had to get over that fear, that mm-hmm. fear of putting my face in the water. That was my big fear. It's like I just, I, I would freak out when I put my face in the water. And then I would freak out when I got over the deep end. It got to the point where I was swimming just fine to the, so I got to the nine foot end. And I would literally stop in the pool and turn around and swim back. That was that kind of just scared and, and freaked out by it. And it was, it was all mental. It was 100% mental. And I was just get so frustrated with myself. I was like, dude, you're a collegiate wrestler. You, like, take on 200-pound men and throw them to the ground. Why are you afraid to swim? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I kept working at it. I kept working at it. And, you know, that first triathlon, I finished the swim dead last. Okay. Um, but I finished. Gotcha. I mean, I looked like a... I look like a water buffalo in the water. There's a, there's a whole lot of splashing and not a lot of forward motion. So, but what, I got it. What got you? Excuse. What got you over the fear of swimming? Determination. I I, I think a lot of it was just I was like, you, you know, I, I, this is something I should be able to go do. It's something with as the father of a of a son, I need to be able to do. Because I never know when I'm going to have to jump in and potentially save my child. And so it was, it was just that type of thing that, that kept me driving toward not giving up on this task. You know, you know I knew my wife knew how to swim. Um, you know, she was a good swimmer. But it, 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 a little bit of it was the competitive juices with my wife. But most of it was just a sense of responsibility within myself. Mm-hmm. that I needed to learn how to swim in case I had to save my children one day. And I need to learn how to swim because this sport of triathlon was going to be a way for me to keep that weight off. Um, and so, I mean, that was literally, you know, when, when it all clicked together and the bug hit, I think I did seven tries that first year. They were all like, uh, you know, little, um, you know, they were, they were small tries, little sprint triathlons. I did like seven of them. 
And then the next year, I signed up for my first half Ironman um, at uh, at Muncie uh, uh, in Indiana. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of rolled from there, man. Um, I literally was, and the next thing I knew, uh, there was a whole big thing in the Black Triathletes Association about Ironman Louisville. And next thing I know, I'm 2015. You know, I just did my first sprint in 2013. 2015, I'm signed up for Ironman Louisville. Hmm. And, you know, I got a coach and I started the training. I, I started to find myself actually enjoying swimming, enjoying that, that trying to get every stroke perfect. Mm. Um, I still wasn't comfortable in open water. Um, and I think the thing I had to come up with some mantras for myself to get myself comfortable in open water. Cause like, I knew I could swim. I could swim, you know, a mile and a half, two miles in the pool on a regular basis. Um, but it's just getting in that open water again, putting my face in the water when I couldn't see in the water, it was an entirely mental thing. And it, it, I, it was something I had to come up with a way to do it. So I came up with the, what I call the first 100 strokes. Okay. So when I get into open water, the first thing I focus on is doing 100 strokes perfectly. I think about my reach. I think about my pull through. I think about kicking. I think about keeping my, keeping my legs up, you know, making, keeping my core tight. You know, I think about how do I rotate uh, to take breath. And I, I literally do that. I count to 100. And if I mess up or get off, I start over again. And by the time I get to a hundred perfect strokes, you know, I can look up in sight and I'm, damn, I'm like, I'm a quarter mile away from the start. Okay. I can do this. It's not going to be an issue. I can finish. Hmm. So, you know, I, I work my way up there, you know, and, you know, signed up for Ironman Louisville. Um, it was really the accomplishment of a lifetime for me. It was just, you know, taking on that impossible task and then just finding a way to get it done. It, and I was just, I was overjoyed. I was full. I mean, you know, people still put up that picture of me at the finish line to this day. You know, I was in tears. It was just, I had just said something that just seemed so impossible such a short time ago and I reached the goal and accomplished it. So, you know, that was just, that was kind of like my road into triathlon. So I've done um, two fulls. I've done five halves. Um, I have not competed in triathlon in the last year. And a lot of reasons for that, um, you know, my job uh, moved to New Jersey. I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee right now. My job moved to New Jersey. I chose not to follow my job. Uh, I was uh, helping my wife get a medical practice off the ground. Uh, she decided to go out on her own, start her own practice around a kind of holistic uh, vegan lifestyle. Um, and I wanted to be able to help her and support her and lift her up in doing that. Uh, she has sacrificed a lot for me uh, as I had moved around the country from Cincinnati to Omaha, Nebraska, and then back to, Chatt and then to Chattanooga, Tennessee. You know, she had never been able to set up a solid patient base for herself as a physician. And mm -hmm. so I was like, baby, it's, it's your turn. You spent, you know, 10 years following me around as I took on these demanding jobs, you know, 50, 60 hour weeks, you know, get, working my way up the corporate ladder. I'm tired of playing the corporate games. Um, I'm tired of just, you know, doing and sacrificing all this for companies that are just going to reorganize and lay you off the next, the next time around. You know, you want to build something, I'm here for you. So I took on the role of a uh, stay-at-home dad. Um, I do real estate. 
um, on the side because uh, it's something that flexible with as far as uh, rehabbing and renting houses. But, you know, my main job is stay-at-home dad. And then it, it was almost fortuitous that I took on that role of stay-at-home dad because of coronavirus here. Um, and so for the last couple of months, you know, it's been not, a, not only stay-at-home dad, but, you know, I'm the teacher too, you know, uh, homeschooling my kids. So we've already made the call that coming into the fall semester, we're not going back to school. Uh, we're going to continue homeschooling. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I am going to get back into triathlon probably whenever triathlon comes back. Because <laughs> you know, right. a lot of races threw, are canceled and whatnot. threw that out there, you know, because I remember seeing the post and I was like, yo, this is, this is, this is not, not that it's abnormal, but it's not, it's not like a traditional role. And I thought maybe that's, maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe it's just, it's just a post. Let me just read it. Okay. He's staying at home. I'm like, no, this is, this guy, you know, you go back I'm like this, this guy was in, you know, professional. He didn't, I don't, I don't remember seeing a post where he had gotten, you know, laid off or anything along those lines. I'm like, okay, so he made a conscious decision. He's going to stay at home and support his wife. I'm like, yo, this is, this is fascinating, man. This is not the normal thing that, that people would do. It's not, and I, and I agree, it's not the normal thing, but I think it's the fair thing to do. Because, you know, a relationship, you know, we're both professionals. We have, you know, I have an undergrad degree in engineering. I have an MBA. Yeah. You know, I, I graduated from a top 20 school with my MBA, a top 10 school with my engineering degree. You know, I've been in corporate America. I worked for $80 billion company, a $30 billion company, and like another $25 billion company. And, you know, I'd been in corporate America. I'd climb my way up the ladder. Um, but at the end of the day, I had to sit back and realize that my job in corporate America is only secure until the next merger or the next reorg. It's not really setting ourselves up for long-term wealth um, mm -hmm. unless you just really just live super below your means. My wife, on the other hand, you know, she is in a position to be able to build something and she goes out on her own. She had worked for major hospitals, which have become to the point where they're a lot like working for corporate America for the doctors. You know, the doctors are treated like cogs in the wheel. And so she had this vision that she wanted to start her own practice where, you know, she would not be beholden to insurance. She would not be beholden to um, you know, corporate mandates from hospitals. It was her practice and she could teach this holistic form of medicine where she treats the whole person. She still uses pharmaceuticals where they're needed, but she really focuses on diet, exercise, and mental health in her practice. And so she believed in that and she wanted to go do that. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like it was my role as a father and husband to support her in that. And what support looked like was giving up my career. Um, I don't regret it. Okay, let me, let me stop lying. Let me stop lying. <laughs> many, it's, it's been many days where I do feel regret for it, but when I sit back and think about it, I get over it because a lot of times it does sting. My 10-year-old has this bad habit. When people ask what his daddy does, he's like, my daddy's unemployed. I'm like, okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> when did you get that lesson, man? man didn't that tell you? <laughs> don't say nothing, don't talk, baby, don't touch nothing. <laughs> oh, man, Q, 
kids, kids tell all your business. So it, I, it's like I'm standing home kids right now. Your business. Full time job, man. <laughs> oh, man. It certainly is a full time job. Um, but you know, I, I, I do feel. So it's like it's replacing one sense of purpose with another sense of purpose, right? Before I had totally devoted myself to this corporate America, I was a black man. I was the only black man in the room many of the times. Um, I dotted all the I's. I crossed all the T's. I did everything right. You know, I said the right words at the right time. I spoke the King's English all the time. You know, I, you know, smiled at all the microaggressions that, you know, folks would throw out there, all the snide comments that would be made, all the things that are kind of like, where they gaslight you and try to make you think that you're crazy. You know, I kind of, I endured all that stuff. And I just, I threw myself down there as being that example and that purpose. And I had to step back and realize mm-hmm. my purpose in life is not to become a corporate manager. Yeah. My purpose in life is to raise three black boys to be black men. Mm. Because I think back to my chain and my my birthright that I've inherited. My my grandfather uh, was was from North Carolina, uh, and so he worked on the railroads as a as a just a laborer on the railroad for about 20 years. And this was in the 1930s. Right there at the end of the Depression, a black man in Reesville, North Carolina, who had saved up every dime he could, bought a 50-acre farm. It was unheard of uh, for a black man to have a farm that large. Uh, And so he bought that farm, and that farm stayed in, in his hands. He farmed that until the 1970s. You know, my father came up on that farm uh, he managed to be the first to go to college. Uh, he went into the Navy. Uh, he served during the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, on the USS Intrepid. Um, and the Navy was his ticket to go to college. And so then I came up behind them, you know, and I came from a mother who, you know, she was a victim of the school closures in Prince Edward County, Virginia. And when at the Brown versus Board of Education, rather than integrate the schools, they closed the schools down. And so she missed four years of school. Mm. And she, you know, they were they were close for four years. And so she when she got to move to another another town, uh, you know, she had missed two years of school. They were close for a total of four. She sat in that school in that schoolhouse at her at her at her great at her great grandmother's house. And she took two grades in two years. In two years, so she did two grades a year for two years. So she made up all the time she lost. And so she always distressed to us education. You know, we were raised in the church. We were stressed hard work because we were raised on a farm. Hard work, education—that's the key. And you know, I felt like I've been handed kind of that birthright, and that's something I need to pass to my kids. So that next generation mm-hmm. continues the chain unbroken, you know, so that by the time, you know, 2030 rolls around here, there will be a century of withers men mm-hmm. who have done the absolute best they could to leave this world a better place than what they found. It. So I just felt like that was a bigger purpose than anything I could do in corporate America. And so, you know, I'm at home with my kids 
you know, before, you know, when the coronavirus hit, I'm at home with my kids all day, every day. And so it, it's, it's teaching. It's teaching all the time. It's like, you know, not just schoolwork. We do, uh, we have a garden outside. I teach them how to raise, how to raise plants. I teach them how to do projects around the house. Um, you know, we go on a hike every day. Mm. And so it's, it's about, you know, learning about nature, learning about trees, learning how to kind of, you know, blend in, seeing different things, exposing them to different things. And so it, it's very rewarding within itself to do that. You know, a lot of times the thing that I've got to do is that I've got to remind myself to ignore what society says about what success looks like and create my own success. I can tell you it's not, it doesn't always work because those doubts are always creeping in uh, mm -hmm. to my mind about like, man, it's like this, this, this thing, I'm, you know, I spent 20 years in corporate America and it's like, I just kind of tossed it all away. And I, you know, it, it, I had to consciously remind myself of the why, why did I do it? It's almost like it, it relates back to endurance sports. I mean, because when you're out there, you're on the bike and you know, you're 70 miles into a hundred mile ride. Mm -hmm. You got to remind yourself of your why. Why are you doing this? And that's what keeps you going. It's the same thing when you are a black man and you're trying to be a stay-at-home dad. You got to remind yourself of that why. What is the bigger purpose? What am I trying to get done? Yeah, it, it is. Um, There's something else. I remember when I was in, I think it was like the 90s, and I was working at a, running a drop-off prevention program at the time. And my, my director, remember saying, oh man, you have a welfare mentality. I remember getting in my car and going to his in his office because I needed to hear him say this face to face. You know, what? Hey, I have a welfare mental. What do you mean? Because my parents were never on on welfare, and I don't I don't knock it. I mean, if that's what you, I didn't come from that, so it's okay. But I, I need you to help me understand why why you think I have a welfare mentality. And after going through it, it was like he just there was a time when we had a summer uh, program with the job. And then he waited like to the end of the year in the summer to say, oh, by the way, we're not going to be um, working this summer. I'm like, you would want to maybe tell us that in advance so we could kind of plan. You know, my kids were younger at the time. I'm like, how am I, that's, I can't plan. How am I, now, like now I got to start thinking like, what am I going to do? You know, July, August, until we get back to school in September. I'm like, this is the worst. So I went and, um, you know, I had, I had created a program the the following summer, got him a job, and because you just couldn't have uh, the senior case manager work, and you needed a director, or whatever, and so he had gotten a job. So, given all of that, for him to say that I had a welfare mentality, I was like, you know what? I think it's time for me to perhaps pursue some other things. So, I stayed at home for a year with my kids, and that was the most rewarding year of of of, of my life you know, just being able to, to be there. And it gave me an appreciation for what my wife was doing at the time, because prior to that, I was just like, okay, we have, we have, you know, I'm going to do this and you're doing that. And so it's a team, you know, we're, we're a team. And I'm thinking that's, that's, yeah, it's a little different. You know, you go out and you're working with adults, staying at home with, with children is a lot different. There's no, there's no break. There's no nap. There's no, you know, there's no calling out sick. There's none of that, you know, it's constant go, 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 go. And you're like, you can't, you might want to feel like you want to turn on the TV, but that doesn't occupy them for so long. You mm -hmm. start, what am I doing? Am I contributing to them? I'm like, you know what? 
It's not as easy as it looks. And it's not a job. I mean, and I, and I said that it's a full-time job, but it's not a job. And so here it, it gave me a reevaluation of, okay, yeah, this, this thing at home is, is serious. It's not, um, it's not, it's not, it's not to be taken lightly. Just a sec. What are you talking about, Siri? <clears throat> so just hearing it, hearing you um, go through that, when I seen the post, I was like, this is, this is incredible, man. This is something that I want to find out more about. I want to, you know, have you be able to share that. And then the things that you're doing with your relationships with, um, with other people, uh, it seems as though you have a reach and it's just not black people that you're, that you're in contact with, you know, you, you have white followers and then to be able to share, um, I think you had, you had put together a toolkit, which I thought was, um, was, uh, was interesting. Yes. Anti-racist toolkit. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, first of all, that was not my toolkit. That was something I found. In the, and as I looked through that anti-racist toolkit, I was like, wait, this is all the books I've read, <laughs> you know? You know, books like, you know, White Fragility, you know, books on how to be an anti-racist. I was like, I've read all these books. I can approve of all these books. Um, and I was like, you know what? I think that this is something, because so to take a step back, and, you know, I started doing these things, these daddy lessons on Facebook, these anecdotes, uh, just short little stories about what was going on with me and my kids. And mm -hmm. I started these when my first one was born. And the reason why was because we were in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, my parents were in North Carolina. My wife's uh, folks were in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, it was tough to get down to see kid, to see them all the time because my wife was working as a doctor. You know, I was working in corporate America. We had really busy schedules. So I just started, you know, when, when funny things happen or insightful things happen, I just throw it on Facebook because my parents on Facebook, her parents on Facebook, you know, it was a way to kind of keep family connected. And, you know, people just kind of started following it. I've been doing these for 10 years now. Mm. Um, and so the thing that I started realizing was I started realizing my reach in that um, when, when Trayvon Martin occurred, you know, and and I and you know Trayvon Martin, and then you know Tamir Rice, and then Mike Brown. You know, I would comment on these things, and you know, I would try to always comment in an insightful way to really try to break through to people. Mm -hmm. And I found that I was getting response to that. And you know, when George Floyd happened, you know, part of me is just like, again, yeah, really, and it, it's just. You know, I got, but, uh, you know, I got, I've seen the change in a lot of the folks, you know, folks are reaching out, started reaching out to me. So I was like, man, I need to be able to, I can't sit here and have, you know, a 30 minute, 45 minute conversation with these folks every time they message me, you know, we, I need to be able to give them something so they can go off and study for themselves mm -hmm. so they can understand what I've been coming from all these years. It's like the light bulb has went off for a lot of people. And I saw this uh, as I was searching through the web, and I was like, these are a lot of the books that I've already read. I already know what a lot of these books are about because, you know, and, and I went back, I'd read some of these books in the past. And when Trump got elected, I went back and read a lot of these books again to try to understand that mentality of people, trying to, trying to kind of understand where they were coming from and why they were cast to vote that way. Mm -hmm. You know, so I read some of these books several times and and I just felt like you know what let me let me let me just throw this out to people and just start to, to distribute this as something that people can go read on their own mm -hmm. and start to learn on their own like 
you know, stuff like just understanding the struggle of black people. Because I felt like a book like The Warmth of the Suns, you know, that talks about the great migration that helps us to understand, you know, how black people came to be in many of our northern uh, uh, urban centers. You know, I almost wish there was a Warmth of the Suns that talked about the black folks that stayed. Like my grandfather, who stayed in North Carolina, my father, who stayed in North Carolina, you know, because, you know, we struggled and flourished ourselves and just just seeing that generational struggle and understanding the impact of, of redlining uh, and just uh, just the economic systemic racism that has existed in this country uh, forever and just how it has impacted the, uh, the ability for black people to build generational wealth. Um, and so, you know, I just wanted to, I just, I can't sit there and, and talk folks through all those things that I've read. I need to give them this stuff to, to go read and learn. If you're really interested, yeah. if you really want to go, go do this, if you really want to think differently, start reading. Um, and, and so that's why I put that together. And I think that also kind of, uh, you know, I realized back when, when the, the first round of these happened and, you know, cause essentially Facebook has changed everything. Facebook and the cell phone camera has made things that have always happened yeah. now come to the fore. Yeah. Like, you know, they want the first. Mike Brown, Trayvon, um, you know, George Floyd, they want the first, but they own video now. Yeah. And so, you know, I decided I was going to use this tool myself to humanize my black boys because, you know, that's the thing I realized is that, you know, my 10-year-old, he's about the size of most 12 or 13-year-olds. He's a big kid. He's got dreadlocks. You know, he's, he still has that, that, you know, baby fat on his face. But, you know, in a couple of years, that's going to start to melt away. He's, he's, he's five foot one, 150 pounds at 10. He was a size 10 men's shoe. Hmm. You know, he's going to be a big man. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and he's on track to be maybe 6'4", 6'3", 6'4". That is the type of thing. And, and I just I just see these white folks, you know, just because my black boy is cute right now. And he's making that transition into a black man. And I just see a lot of my posts as now as being more than just ways to communicate with family. It's a way to give humanity to my children. So yeah. that people can see that I'm just like everybody else. Yeah. You know, we're struggling through the same thing. And I, that's why I try to keep it real. You know, yeah. I, don't, I don't make my Facebook posts all sunshine and rainbows. You know, I talk about the struggles. And it's like, you know, we have struggles just like everybody else does. And there's a common shared humanity that we all have. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's important. I think it's easier when it's you're looking on a screen and there's somebody out there that um that no one knows you know it's a little different when when you're seeing travis uh and you've watched his sons so it's it's almost like this this connection um that you that you've established throughout the years and now it's like oh this is like travis is like i know travis you know we've raced together you know i remember when his son was standing on the dining room table you know and cereal was all over the place you know so you 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 had this history and it's it's like you said it's, it's humanizing the, the experience. It makes it a lot uh, a lot easier. Like I I've never um I can't say I've watched you know somebody race around a track just driving around in circles, 
come to find out you're a NASCAR fan. So I'm like, okay. So there's the, everyone has got something a little different that they're into, which then can help someone connect. Cause I, I might not be into NASCAR. It's like, I like the jackets, the speed, you know, when I was at the depot, I remember we had a guy, you know, we had a car, an orange car. I forget who the driver was, you know, you know, some of the top names or whatever. I did go see Ford, Ford versus Ferrari, you know, because there's a certain, I saw the movie, right? I, I can't say that I'm a NASCAR fan. I didn't know who Bubba was until recently. I'm like, oh, Bubba. I'm like, which one is Bubba? Like, I can't, I'm like, I don't know. But through, you know, social media and times going, I was like, oh, okay, Travis knows, you know, he likes NASCAR. Who knew? But that becomes something that someone can relate to. And it's like, yo, we have some things in common and everyone is different. There is no one type of, of, of black person. And I think that's good for people to kind of like get in their head, like, yo, you, you can... If you, if all you've seen through, or, or, or know of, of black people is what you've seen on TV, what people have portrayed on TV, you've never actually sat down and had had a conversation, broke bread, or or been able to, to talk with someone outside of of what you're seeing on TV. You have no idea what black people what we what we're like, the experiences that we go through, and you come to find out, oh, they like race cars also, they like country music also. Like who knew? You know, so I think that's it's important, man. I think that's exactly right. I mean, that's one of the things I learned about, you know, there's different types of, I don't want to, okay, so there's different types of things that I've experienced as I've moved around the country. You know, one of the most segregated cities I ever lived in was Cincinnati. Um, mm -hmm. And I think in Cincinnati, you had people who had these, this, these weird perceptions, you know, anybody that was from Price Hill or Avondale, you know, folks that would live in Westchester or Mason, you know, they thought that that was just like a war zone. I was like, nah, that's just the next neighborhood over from where we live. And then, you know, I moved to Nebraska and you have folks that you're like, I, I'll never forget, I had one of my coworkers who was from a small town near Kearney, Nebraska. And she literally, she told me, she's like, I didn't meet a black person until I went to college. Wow. That was the first time she met a black person in person. And so for them, it was just like, and you know, even in my church group, we ended up joining a majority white church. And in my, you know, church group, you know, I found myself just, this was their first exposure. And so sometimes people just have these things that are just from a lack of exposure. And I think just, just pulling back the curtain for a minute and just helping folks realize that, you know, people are going through the same things that they are is it, just kind of refreshing. You know, I've even had some folks who, you know, I know they voted for Trump and they reached out and they've talked about how their eyes have been opened. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I think George Floyd is a watershed for the country. I mean, I thought, I thought that... Uh, I thought that some of the others would be watersheds too, but I think what it is, is a gradual process. You know, I think sometimes you think, oh, nothing has changed. But now if you, if you think back to when, you know, Kaepernick first took a knee mm -hmm. and the response then and how people are now looking back and realizing, oh, he had a point. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we reacted the wrong way. The progress is too slow. Yeah. It is much too slow. 
it is glacial. Yeah. You know, when I think about the changes from when I was a kid to now, but there is progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's that, that's um that's what I guess keeps me hopeful, and and I, and I see some of the work that you uh, I see the work that you do, and I think it's in uh, I think it's important. It's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on on the show, man. I I appreciate you taking the time. I I don't want to you know I don't want you to get you know your kids to 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 fire you from 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 your role today. I know you had a, a full day lined up with uh, with school and everything. You got a couple of meetings. <laughs> I don't want to be. I don't want to be the cause of, of your kids, you know, uh, <laughs> rebellion and uprising, you know. And next thing you know, it's like, yo, Travis, man, I'm sorry, yeah. you know, about the meeting, man. But thank you so yeah. much for being here with us. I appreciate you, man. Enjoy the rest of your day, man. Well, school, huh? school didn't end. School didn't end. We, we, we. You know, we're gonna start lessons at about ten o'clock. At ten o'clock, okay. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. No problem, man. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day, man. Thank you. Have a great one. Thank you for having me on. Bye-bye.